marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry. The activists. The medical professionals. The legislators. The economists. The regulators. The lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the Coin Podcast Network. How big is the potential legal cannabis economy? Large enough that we'll dedicate the next two episodes talking about the money and how that potential pot of gold drives policy, changes minds, and has the potential to address inequity, but if not executed well, could potentially crash, with the world leaving the U.S. behind like proverbial stems and seeds. You're listening to Mainstream Media. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast, one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. If you want a glimpse into the looking glass at the potential future of the cannabis industry locally, nationally, and globally, you need an expert who collects and analyzes the data and looks for trends, opportunities, and pitfalls. You need a cannabis economist. And arguably, the global leader in the field is based right here in Oregon. Bo Whitney, the chief economist at Whitney Economics. So, Bo... What led you to focus on the economics of cannabis and hemp? Well, you know, when I first was introduced to this, I was probably as far away from the cannabis industry as you can imagine. I was doing supply chain and forecasting for high-tech companies like Triquent Semiconductor and Intel, and I was an economics professor, and I was teaching at the university level. So I wasn't anywhere near this, but a student came to me talking about business organization and structures and how to set up licensing and stuff. Finally, he got around to asking him what industry he was in, and he said cannabis. I asked him how large the industry was, and he said, I don't know. You're the economist. You tell me. So just being intellectually curious, I I looked at the market and developed a market model. This is right around the time that there was the Measure 91 initiative in 2014, legalizing adult use in Oregon. And when I looked at the market and looked at the tax potential, I was amazed. And so I immediately ran out and set up a consulting company. 
and decided that I was going to jump in. I saw the potential in Oregon, and then I expanded my model to a national model and then ultimately an international model. But I had no idea really what I was getting into until I really rolled up my sleeves. So for people like me who don't really understand the economic side of the industry, I see numbers bantied about a lot, and they're big numbers, billions of dollars. What does a cannabis economist do? Because in your case, it looks like you use the data and your expertise to do everything from entrepreneurial guidance at the local level, regulatory guidance at the state level, and education and policy guidance at the federal and global level. So talk about all the hats you wear. Yeah, well, I'm somewhat unique in the sense that not only did I look at things academically, but then I actually worked in the industry. I was the chief operations officer of a company here in Oregon that was initially started by a group out of Canada. And um, so I have that vertically integrated experience that I, I was involved in growing and processing and retail, uh, distribution and the like. So I, I bring kind of a unique set of skills, but I've applied those in various ways. First of all, I compiled data. One of the reasons I got into this in the first place was that I saw this huge opportunity, not only in Oregon, but nationally, and nobody was doing it. And so there was no data out there. But I found this to be very incredibly interesting, so I thought I'd poke at it a little bit. So one of the things that I do is I compile data. Right now, there's no federal systems because it's federally illegal. So I have to parse everything together either via licenses from regulatory groups or surveys or visiting sites and doing all this stuff. So one of the things I do is I compile data. And then I also examine the industry to see if there's any trends. And so I publish out on the trends either from a macro perspective or a product-specific perspective. And then I also look at policy. One of the hats I wear is how does public policy impact the industry or how does it impact individual businesses. So I really look at that. I look at it not only from a local perspective, but from a state, national, and international perspective. I also look at investments. I do business valuations. I do due diligence for investment firms and the like. And then also, because I've accumulated this knowledge over all of this time, I am considered a, an expert. And so I do expert witness testimony in, in trials. But I focus on jobs and taxes because that's what everybody wants to know about, especially the politicians. How do I create jobs? How do I get tax revenues? But then I also look at businesses, business numbers, licenses, medicinal, market segmentation, illicit versus legal. I do this all state by state, practically county by county or city by city. I'm taking this question right off your website, so you probably know the answer. How big is the American market for recreational cannabis? So there's a couple of different ways that you can look at it. You can look at it at the total potential market, which is over $100 billion, or you could look at it from a legal perspective, and then that's really dependent upon the deployment of each state regulatory market. But for perspective, that $100 billion is larger than the distilled spirits market. It's larger than all of the chicken that's sold in the United States. It's also... If you looked at it from a country perspective, it would have a larger economy than over 120 countries around the world. So cannabis market in the United States is huge, $100 billion. Let's talk about Oregon's cannabis industry. 
Measure 91 passed in 2014, so we're going to say we're about seven years in. What do you think is being done well in the state of Oregon, and what challenges does the industry still face here in our state? You know, just for sizing perspective, Oregon, it's about a $1.4 billion market out of that $100 billion U.S. market. That's the potential. And it's captured about $1.1 billion. So from a what's going right perspective, it's uh, capturing a lot of the legal demand. And and there are certain nuances with the national versus state structures where anything that's produced in Oregon has to remain in Oregon and has to be consumed in Oregon. But that's not always the case. And there's still a fairly substantial illicit market as well at about three to $400 million. So what's gone right is the fact that they've captured a lot of the market, but there's still this ever present illicit market. And it's not just the illicit market contained within the borders. Oregon produces between 10 and 15% of the total supply of cannabis in the United States. So there's a lot of illicit exporting that occurs out of the state into markets like New York, New Jersey, or Florida, or what have you. So getting the arms around the illicit exports and trying to drive that out has been a major challenge for Oregon. Another challenge has been how to balance the supply versus the demand through the issuance of licenses for cultivation, retail, and the like. That's been really difficult to size because there's no other real markets out there. Each market is different. So there's no one size fits all solution. So that's been really difficult with the regulators to strike that balance. You know, I don't envy the position of legislators or policymakers or regulators in this space because they have to balance public safety with growing a nascent industry. And that's a real tough nut to crack. And another aspect of the Oregon market that's been a challenge is how to include people, even though there's a lot of licenses out there. Are the licenses in the right place, within the right community? Is there social equity aspects to this? So that's been one of the one of the biggest challenges, really, is striking those balances between all of these different factors. I've had a couple of guests that I've spoken with that are worried that foreign, mainly Canadian investment in Oregon's cannabis industry could squeeze out those local-owned businesses, the BIPOC businesses, the businesses owned by women here in Oregon. Is the Canadian interest in Oregon's cannabis industry a good thing or a bad thing economically? You know, when I look at competition, I think that Oregon needs to be more concerned about competition within the state and from other states at this point in time. But as the market opens up from a federally legal perspective, then there's going to be international competition. And right now, based upon the cost structure and all of that, U.S. businesses aren't competitive on an international basis. So while I've benefited personally from having a Canadian investor come into the Oregon market, I don't see that as much of a threat as just trying to stand up the industry and have it uniform across the country. I have to assume that one of the greatest impediments to fully realizing the cannabis and hemp economy in the United States is that federal Schedule One controlled substance status. What work have you done or continue to do to deschedule cannabis? So 
Whitney Economics, as a firm, doesn't take a position on the legalization of cannabis. What we do is we provide the data to allow others to make informed decisions. So we will maybe look at the strengths and weaknesses of a particular bill. We may look at some policy at the federal regulatory level, and I can go into that in a little bit, or at the state level. But we just provide the numbers, and then we provide what the issues and impacts may be of certain policy. And sometimes we provide potential solutions, but we don't advocate one way or the other. Have you then... As a result of that kind of data and education you provide to certain lawmakers in D.C., have they changed their position or at least amended their position when it comes to the cannabis industry? You know, I consider myself an educator, right? And so that goes back to when I was a professor of economics and and business structures and international and the like. And so there have been instances where regulators or policymakers, especially in Congress, when they see the data and become better educated on what the impact of the policies are relative to the industry, then it it brings them into a different perspective. And sometimes I see those perspectives change and sometimes I don't. What it appears to me at a holistic level is that cannabis, although it's a national issue and there's a lot of social justice elements and a lot of taxation elements and employment elements to it, um, but when I when I talk to people, everybody has their own story. And so cannabis policy is very personal because they bring in their personal histories into the policy. So hopefully sometimes when I provide the numbers and talk about impact and show a larger picture of what's going on rather than just that individual's personal perspective, then hopefully they can adapt their policy if it's appropriate for them to do so. There's been some people that have, when I've gone into their offices, they've said, we're not even going to have a conversation. You're not going to take me off of a position, so don't even waste your breath. I've experienced that a number of times. Then I thank them for being so forthright and say, this is an opportunity to find some common ground here. And they're like, no, there is no common ground get out of my office. (laughs) And then in other instances, it's like, wow, I had no idea that this was an issue or that was an issue or that was an issue. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. And then they incorporate that, they change their philosophy a little bit, and then they incorporate that into the policy. A lot of that has been centered around like banking policy or tax policy or social justice policy, or to a large extent, even interstate commerce policy. So those seem to be the one, the, the four focus areas is federally that seem to have the greatest reach and the most influence, say, on the Oregon market. Those four areas seem to be the largest roadblocks that the industry faces right now. What data are you showing these policymakers in D.C. when it comes to the banking industry, the taxation issues like the 280E, the social justice issue, which is such an important part of the advocacy towards legalization? And then, yes, that fourth roadblock, interstate commerce. Because I remember a couple of years ago here in Oregon, producers had overgrown the demand. And we were sitting on, I believe the figure that I saw was like a seven-year supply based off the consumption levels at the time. And looking at states like Colorado and Washington and Alaska and California and thinking, if we could just fix the interstate commerce, those producers would have the ability to continue to move the product before it ages itself out of being useful. So what kind of data have you shown to those policymakers about those four key challenges? Yeah. So with respect to taxes, the cannabis businesses, be it cultivators, 
processors or retailers and, and other ancillary businesses, they actually pay about $3.4 billion in federal taxes every year. And so it's a considerable figure. And they've contributed an additional $8 billion in tax revenue at the sales tax level. So that's going into the states. That's cumulative, but $3.4 billion a year. Now, what happens here is that there's a tax code called 280E, which was enacted about 40 years ago without a Senate hearing or any hearings. And, and it was um, basically voted on and approved for uh, on a voice vote. What the tax policy was intended to do was to make it so difficult to conduct illicit drug activity that you wouldn't even have any incentive to do so. But over the course of those 40 years, of course, there's been a lot of policy reform, states deployment of medical and then adult use cannabis. And so that 280E policy has shown its age. And as a result, the policy is working correctly to dissuade people from entering in or participating in the legal cannabis space. But it's contradicting other policies that have evolved over time, such as social justice, inclusion, supporting small businesses and the like. So just on 280E taxes alone, cannabis operators, and now we're not just talking about big businesses. There's over 35,000 licenses in the United States for legal cannabis. And so it's a pretty substantial uh, market already. And they're paying an additional $2.5 billion a year on the average between now and say 2025, $2.5 billion in additional taxes than they would have paid had they been treated like a normal business, not under this 280E structure. And assuming that Biden's corporate tax increases are approved to increase corporate taxes from 21 to 28%. That amount goes up to $3.3 billion more each year that they'll pay in additional taxes. What that's doing is it's putting a stranglehold on businesses, and it's not allowing them to grow and flourish. It's meant to be more controlling in nature. I just deployed a national survey of cannabis operators looking at their business sentiment and business conditions. And when looking specifically at profitability, 58% of the survey respondents said that they're not making a profit. And it's attributed to this 280E taxes. And then when I broke it down towards non-white business owners, 71% weren't making profits. And when I looked at it from a male versus female perspective, female business owners, 63% weren't making profits. So when there's a lot of focus these days on uh, social justice, economic justice, and inclusion of, of folks in BIPOC communities and women-owned businesses, the policies are basically forcing them out of business rather than allowing them into the business community. Access to banking, it's also disproportionate against small businesses, women-owned businesses, and BIPOC businesses because uh, generally they don't have access to capital like large corporations do. And so when you don't have the banking and the access to capital markets, even to get a bridge loan, say you have a delay in your accounts receivable and you need a little bit to get by to pay your payroll, that's not afforded to cannabis operators. And so once again, it disproportionately impacts uh, smaller businesses to the point where once they get behind on their taxes or once they get behind on their payments, it's extremely difficult to catch back up. And now interstate commerce is a potential solution to that. But on interstate commerce, there's some opposition to it on the eastern seaboard because they're experiencing high prices right now uh, due to the limited supply and the high demand. So if, say, for example, that 
that excess inventory. And by the way, I was a peer reviewer on that report that OLCC produced for the legislators. And I found that to be a very sound uh, methodology. But by allowing Oregon cultivators to export to other states, it would normalize revenue for Oregon. It would save them because prices collapsed dramatically during that period, but it would bring down the profits and margins on the East Coast. So there's a little bit of give and take. But if you think about it from a holistic level, what interstate commerce does is it gives folks that haven't deployed a regulatory program yet, the opportunity to avoid setting up these siloed structures where you have to build out the entire supply chain. It'll allow, say, the Western states to supply the Eastern states and then cut out a lot of that additional middlemen in that whole process. So there's a compelling case to be made to allow for interstate commerce. It's the same thing that happens with corn or wheat or hemp for that matter. So why not cannabis? And there's also a social equity and social justice element to that as well. And on that, you know, social equity and social justice, there's cannabis has been used as a lever to disproportionately impact communities of color. I read some very compelling data from the ACLU in a report that shows across the country that blacks are disproportionately arrested for simple marijuana possession. They're disproportionately uh, arrested when compared to whites. In some counties in the Midwest, for example, there are more arrests of black people than there are black residents. And so it's just basically somebody gets pulled over, they get inspected for cannabis, and they get arrested. Now, there's been some movements as well to say, well, let's maybe reduce the budgets of law enforcement to send a message to them to knock this off. But what law enforcement is doing in return is they're increasing civil asset forfeitures, and they're doing that to backfill their budget. So if there's ever going to be any comprehensive social justice and social equity reform, it has to go well beyond cannabis to include some of these other law enforcement policies, such as civil asset forfeitures. When I was speaking with Congressman Earl Blumenauer, he said something that struck me, and I will never forget it. He said, President Nixon weaponized cannabis. Because at the time, he was looking at it as a way to go after his detractors, go after the youth, the activists, and disproportionately the populations of color. And I'd never heard it phrased that way. But if you look at what has been done from a social justice standpoint, when it comes to cannabis, Blumenauer is absolutely correct. It was weaponized. He also brought up, and you did as well, he believes that the communities that were most impacted by the war on drugs should be first in line to start benefiting from the thing that was used against them for so long. You know, social justice policy is extremely difficult and complex, and there's a lot of policies around expungement, for example. But some folks that have been impacted by this took a plea bargain in order to avoid jail time, and so they may have pled down to tax evasion or something else, and it doesn't necessarily show up on their record as a cannabis-related offense. So just the whole concept of expungement, that's super complex because how do you define who was arrested for cannabis versus who was legitimately arrested for tax evasion for something else? And how do you tie all that back? So even in that, just like there's different state regulatory systems, there's different structures at different state levels on how to address the disproportionate impact on communities of color, but there's no clear solution quite yet. It's still a work in progress. And this whole, as uh, 
Congressman Blumenauer said, the weaponization, uh, this had not only a profound effect in the U.S., but it had profound effect on international treaties. And so the U.S. was very influential on the development of treaties at the U.N. level and elsewhere. And so as a result, other countries that could have benefited from cannabis, had there not been this prohibition, were denied that opportunity. So it extends way beyond our borders. Um, I gave a, a speech in Zimbabwe, for example. I met with ministry members across sub-Saharan Africa, and they're really looking at how to build into their economies a cannabis economy because they see not only the economic and job creation, but they see things from an increased nutrition perspective where they see it from a uh, access to hard currency perspective, and they see it from a reduction in the healthcare expenditures. So there's there's a lot of potential benefits associated with cannabis deployment on a global scale that people may not realize when they're sitting in their apartments or homes in Oregon or elsewhere. Bo, let's put a pin in it right there, and we'll pick it up in our next episode. Mainstream media. In part two of our talk with cannabis economist Bo Whitney, we'll discuss how the states and the feds may be unintentionally squeezing the industry. We'll talk about the economic portrait of a national market, and it's a very big portrait. And Bo looks at the data and issues a cautionary warning to the U.S. about global competition, all on the next edition of Mainstream Media on the COIN Podcast Network.